Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Live Through Jesus podcast with Courtney Gilmore. On this episode, Faith, Courage, and the Christian Life. This is Joshua 3 and 4, and we'll be reading all the scriptures from the ESV version. Quickly before we get started, if you're new to Live Through Jesus, make sure you go to livethroughjesus.com and sign up to receive your free five-week Bible study over Abraham. There you'll also find blog posts that coincide with the teachings on this podcast and social media links, which is another way to keep in touch throughout the week. Okay, let's get started. Did anyone else have one of those dads that was constantly saying, you know, jump to me and I'll catch you. You're standing on something tall and he's like, just jump, I'll catch you. For some reason, my dad was always doing this. And you're, as a kid, always afraid. You're scared that, I guess, he's not going to catch you. And then when you hesitate, he's like, do you really think I'm not going to catch you? Why are you hesitating? It's like, Yeah, I kind of do. I kind of think you might not catch me. And he's constantly like, you've got to be kidding me. I will definitely catch you. Come to me. And then eventually, if this goes on for any length of time, it really is like, I actually don't believe that he will catch me. And in order to prove that I trust my dad, I have to jump, right? This is the only, I can't just say, yeah, dad, I, I don't actually think you're going to let me fall, but also I'm too scared to jump. He's going to say, well, what are you scared of? You're scared of falling. Well, if you're not afraid I'm going to let you fall, then what, why won't you do it, right? And that is the same with our faith. We can't just say, Yeah, I believe you're going to catch me, Dad. Yeah, I believe, God, that you're going to save me. Yes, I believe that you are who you say you are and you did what you said you did. I believe all that. And then go on about our business. God is like, prove it to me. If you really believe, then put your life in my hands. That's same as I would be doing if I were to jump to my dad and he wouldn't catch me and I would fall, you know, to my death as if he was really getting me to jump from something high enough that that would happen anyway. But as a kid, that's what you're thinking. So the story of how the Israelites got into the promised land in the first place is the perfect picture of faith and courage and the Christian life. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So the first generation of Israelites that had gotten out of Egypt, they're all gone now. Moses is also gone. And Joshua is now the leader, and he's about to take the people into the promised land. And last week, we talked about how he sent two spies in to check the land out so they knew what it looked like before they got there. Well, these spies have come back now. And the Israelites have started their journey towards the promised land and they're on the edge of the Jordan River. And in order to get into the land, they're going to have to cross this river. So God comes to Joshua and he says, here's what's going to happen. The priests are going to take up the Ark of the Covenant and they're going to start walking. And when they start walking, the rest of the people need to follow them. 
Now, normally the Ark of the Covenant stayed inside the tabernacle. The tabernacle was basically their church and only the priests went inside of this place and inside were two rooms. The first room had the lampstand and the table with the bread on it and a altar of incense. And then there was this big curtain and that separated that room from the back room. The first room was called the holy place and the back room was called the most holy place. And this room only had the Ark of the Covenant in it. And this was basically like a bench. It was a big box and it had a lid on it. And the lid is called the mercy seat. And inside of this is where they would keep the Ten Commandments, the testimony of God. And so sometimes it's called the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant, the covenant that God made with the people. And so that was inside. And then this seat had two cherubim on either side of it and their wings went over it and it would cover the mercy seat like this, okay? And God dwelt there between the wings above the mercy seat. And this is where the high priest would go and meet with God once a year and make atonement for the people's sins. And so the Ark of the Covenant Because that is where the Spirit of God met with the people, this ark was the representation of the presence of God with the people. And normally when they would tear down the tabernacle and they would travel, the Kohathites, which is one of the three tribes within the tribe of Levi, they were the ones that would carry this ark. But this time, God said, no, I want the priests themselves to carry the ark because the priests are the representation of God to the people and the ark is the representation of God's presence. And so this is the representation of God carrying the presence of God in front of the people so that they can see where they're supposed to go. And so they're going to pick this ark up and they're going to carry it and It says that the people need to remain at least 2,000 cubits away from the ark, which is about 3,000 feet, a little over a half a mile. And so the people need to stay back that far so that they can get a good look so that everybody can see where the ark is traveling because God says, you've never been this way before. You don't know which way to go. I am with the priests and I'm leading them and they are leading you. So you have to stay back. And so this is all being told to Joshua the day before. And then I'm going to read you Joshua 3, verse 7. This is after God has explained all that to Joshua. He says this. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And so if you remember, When Moses led the people out of Egypt, God parted the Red Sea and they walked across on dry ground. Well, he's going to do the same thing with the Jordan River this time. And so God is telling Joshua, he says, hey, 
the same way that I led the people out of Egypt, I'm going to lead the people into the promised land. And the same way that Moses started his leadership, you're going to start your leadership. And this will exalt you before the people. This miracle that I'm about to do is going to let the people know that I'm with you and they're going to follow you. And this will be confirmation not only to Joshua, but to the people that God is with Joshua. And so Joshua gathers all of the people around and he begins to tell them all that God has told him about following the ark the next day. And then he says this, this is verse 10. Joshua said, here is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hevites, the Perizzites, the Gergesites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. And then skip down to verse 13. He says, this is how you're going to know that God is going to bring you into this land and give it to you. And then in verse 13, he says, when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all of heaven and earth, when they rest in the waters of the Jordan, then the waters of the Jordan will be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above will stand in a big heap. He says, this is how you're going to know that God's going to do what he says that he's going to do. Now, whenever he says the priest bearing the ark of the Lord, that word is Yahweh, the personal name that they have for their God. And then he says, the Lord of all the earth, Adonai. And Adonai means master. So he says, the priest bearing the ark of Yahweh, the Adonai, the master of all the earth. So he's saying, God's going to reveal to you that he is the master of the whole earth by stopping the flow of this river upstream and making it stand in a big heap so you can walk across. You're going to see that God is fully in charge of even the rivers. And then you will know that he is God. He is with you and he's going to be able to do all of the things that he told you he's going to be able to do. And so the next day, these things happen. The priests take up the ark and they begin to travel and the people wait until they get a little over a half a mile away and they begin to follow them. And this is verse 15. And it says, as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of water. And then in parenthesis, it says, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So it's saying, at this time, whenever they dipped their feet in this overflowing river, this river that has is completely full at this time of year, when they dipped their feet in the water, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. So the scholars tell us that this city of Adam is about 18 miles away 
So as soon as the priests stepped their feet into this overflowing river, 18 miles away, God made the water stop flowing. And they were able to cross on dry ground. Now, this river, the Jordan River, flows into the Salt Sea. And so he says it completely quit flowing into the Salt Sea at this moment. And they were able to walk across. Now, scholars also tell us that this place where the water stopped was probably about this, the spot where the Jabbok River and the Jordan River converge. And at this place, there are often mudslides, especially at this time of year, because the reason that the, that the banks overflow at this time of the year is it is the time of harvest and there are lots of spring rains and also all the snow is melting off of Mount Hermon. And so it's flowing down this mountain and oftentimes it brings big mudslides with it. As a matter of fact, in 1927, there was a great big mudslide at this exact place and it kept the water from flowing for 20 hours. And so it's possible that that's what happened at this time, that there was a mudslide. So does that just mean, oh, coincidence, no big deal. God had nothing to do with it. No, if God's in charge of the river, he's also in charge of the snow. He's also in charge of the mudslides. And God made this happen. It's very clear that it's a miracle. It happens at the exact moment that the priests step their feet into this overflowing river. And we know that no person has done anything to make this happen. No person stopped up the river and no person unblocked it to let all the river flow. But God did this the second that they stepped their feet in the water. God made it stop, whether it was with a mudslide or whatever it was. He dammed up the river. And then we'll find out in a minute, the second that they took their feet out of the river, the water started flowing again. That's not a coincidence. Even if it is a natural occurrence, God is in charge of all the natural occurrences. And God made this happen of his own free will at the exact moment that he wanted it to happen. And he freed the water to flow again at the exact moment he wanted that to happen. It's not a coincidence. So I'm going to read you a couple of passages that talk about how God is in charge of these things. The first one is Job 37, 6 through 13. Verse 6 says, For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the downpour, his mighty downpour. And then skip down to verse 10. And he says, By the breath of God, ice is given. And the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commanded them on the face of the habitable earth. Whether for correction or for his land or for his love, he causes it to happen. So God can bring about these things for any number of reasons, but it's always him says that the breath of God makes ice. It's like he blows and everything turns to ice. 
He loads the thick clouds with moisture, and then he tells them when to drop the rain. Everything he is in charge of. Psalm 47, 15 to 18 says, He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and he melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. All this is so poetic. It's so fun to read how they describe what God is doing with the snow and the rain and all of what the secular world calls Mother Nature. This is God. This is what he does. And then lastly, Jesus does this in the New Testament in Luke 8, 22 to 25, there's a story about how he is on the boat with the disciples and he's below sleeping and there comes a storm. And it says, this is verse 23. It says, a windstorm came down on the lake and the boat was filling with water. And so they went down and they woke Jesus and they said, master, master, we're going to die. And he got up. And it says, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. (laughs) And then the disciples are like, what just happened? It says, they marveled and said to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the waters and they obey him? God is in charge of the wind and the water and the mud and the snow. All of the things of the earth. That's why he's called the master of the earth. The Adonai of the earth. He's proving that to his people right now in this story. Very, very cool. And so we know that this was a miracle from God. And they walk across. And at the very end of verse of chapter 3, It says, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Interestingly enough, this is the first time that they're ever called a nation. The rest of the times they're called the Israelites or the people or the children of God or the children of Israel. This is the first time they're called a nation. And why is that? Because they're setting foot in the nation that is going to be called by their name, Israel, at this very moment. So now that they are in their nation, they are a nation of people for the first time ever. God begins to call them a nation. And it says that after all of the nation crosses over the Jordan, Joshua takes the 12 men that he previously was told to select in chapter 3. This is one from each tribe of Israel. And he says, okay, I told y'all I needed y'all for something special. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to go back over the Jordan, into the Jordan, where the priests are still standing with the Ark of the Covenant. So when they they got into the river, these priests stopped in the center and they stood there until everyone had gone across and they were still standing there 
Joshua called these 12 men and he said, I need you to go back to the very place that these priests are standing. And I want each of you to get a rock and pick it up and put it on your shoulders. So this is no small rock. This is a big stone that they're going to get and put on their shoulder and carry back across the river. And when they get across this river, they're going to set these 12 stones up as a memorial for the people. And this is going to make a permanent structure. They're big stones. And it's going to make this permanent structure that everyone is going to be able to see. And God says, I want this to be here to remind you all of what happened this day. How I brought you across the Jordan River on dry ground. And when your children see this and your children's children and they ask, what is the meaning of these stones? You're going to tell them not only how I brought you across the Jordan on dry ground, but also how I brought your fathers across the Red Sea on dry ground. And then your children are going to know who I am. And everyone will see my power. They'll understand that I am Adonai, master of the earth, and they will fear me and they will learn to obey me because of that. This is chapter four at the very end, verse 24. And he says, so all the people of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. They'll know my power and that they may fear the Lord your God forever. And if you fear God, you'll obey him. And so he says, this is all being done for you. And then I want you to spread the word about my power and let them know that if I am powerful enough to stop the river from flowing and to part the Red Sea in order to let you go across, then I am a God to be feared. I have power and that will compel them to obey me always. This is how you will spread the word about me and help your children to obey me and remind yourselves that I am a God that needs to be obeyed, that I brought you into this land for a purpose and you are my people and you're supposed to do what I tell you. God does this often. He tells them to set up a memorial for this exact purpose over and over and over again. And I think this is something that we should maybe take note of also. You know, we have things like birthdays and anniversaries where we take this day and we remember something that happened on this day, specifically a wedding anniversary. That's what it's there for is to remind you how you committed your life to this person and for you to think back over the years of what you've had together and for it to you know, increase your love for one another and your commitment towards each other. And I think it's good for us to do that with several things, maybe to even have objects that remind us of certain things. We have the wedding ring, right? That reminds us that we are committed to one another. And that is what, when we see it, we're supposed to be thinking of. And we should do that with several things especially things that have to do with God. Whenever God has done something wonderful for us, we should make some way to commemorate it. We need to do things that will remind us of who God is and what he has done for us, especially whenever we're down, we're having a hard time, 
you know, having faith in God for some reason that we can remind ourselves of all the things that he's done for us. And then we're like, I forget, you know, I'm just discouraged right now, but I know God is there. I know his power for me and I know his love for me and I trust him. Those are good things for us to do. Now, the rest of this lesson, I want us to talk about that trust, that faith in God. God had told the priests what was going to happen when they set their foot in that water. But they had to believe that what he said was going to happen actually was going to happen in order to step their foot in that water, right? They probably didn't know how full that river was until they got there. It would be fast flowing, right? If there is, have been lots of rains and the snow is melting off of the mountain and this river is overflowing, it's going to be a fast current. And so they are going to look at this and it had to be scary, right? Just like it's scary for a little kid to jump to their dad. It's scary when you're looking down and you're seeing what could happen if that doesn't work out, right? And they had to be a little bit afraid. But in order for them to actually step their foot into that river, that could carry them away in a moment and their heads would, you know, be covered in a moment if it didn't happen, as God said. They had to believe that it would happen. If they had any doubt, they wouldn't have done it. It wouldn't have made any sense. They would have needed to swim across this river, right? They wouldn't have been able to carry this ark that's supposed to be revered and sacred and taken special care of. They wouldn't have been able to do that. They would have needed to swim across and somehow get this ark across in a different way if God wasn't going to do what he said. They say that this uh, the Jordan River was somewhere between 3 and 10 feet deep and like 90 to 100 feet across. But we know that if it's 3 to 10 feet on a regular day, and this is overflowing, then it is well over their heads. And so they would have needed to swim across if they didn't trust God. But in order to step their foot in, they must have trusted that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. They had to have. Otherwise, they would have swam or they would have just stayed on the bank. And they would have been too afraid because the current would carry them away and they would drown. Now, I want to draw a little bit of a distinction, too, between how God parted the Red Sea and how he is stopping the flow of the Jordan River right now. Whenever he parted the Red Sea, he did this overnight with a strong wind. So he sends this east wind straight through where the people are going to walk and it parts the river on the sea on either side and there are walls of water on either side and he continues to blow this wind all night long until the ground is completely dry. Now, this would still be an awesome, terrifying sight because you have walls of water on either side of you and you would definitely want to run across, right? It would still be terrifying. But it's even scarier for the water not to move at all until you put your foot in it, right? That takes even more faith. It took a lot of faith for the people to cross knowing that this water could just collapse on top of them like it did for the Egyptians later, right? That did take a ton of faith, but God is making them have even more faith this time. 
This time, he will not act until they prove their faith. They have to prove that they believe that he is going to do what he says he's going to do before he will do it. That's a whole different thing, right? That is extreme amounts of faith and courage. In order to step your foot in, risking your life to prove that you believe that God can and will do what he says that he will, right? This is how they have to start their journey. This is how they begin as a nation by proving their faith that strongly. Thankfully, they had the courage to do this, right? Because if the priests never would have set their foot in this water because they were too afraid, then the Israelites never would have gone into the promised land. They couldn't just stand on the banks and say, uh, God, yeah, I'll go across as soon as you do what you said you were going to do. That isn't how it worked this time. The first time with the Red Sea, God showed them that he could part the Red Sea. Now, they didn't have proof that he could keep it parted long enough for him to cross, but they at least could see that he could do that. This time, they don't get that. This time, they have to trust him enough to put their foot in the water. They have to take the first step before he will act at all. God will do nothing until they prove their faith to him. He doesn't want them to just say they believe. They have to prove it. They have to take the first step. And this isn't the only step that they're going to have to take out in faith. This is just the first step. They are going to be required to take many, many more steps of faith throughout their lifetimes. They're in the promised land now, but they don't possess it. It's not theirs yet. It The nation of Israel does not belong to them yet. And the only way that they will get that is if they fight the people that are living there for it. So they have to prove their faith in God over and over again, city by city, with each separate group of people. Remember all those people that we read a while ago, the Jebusites and the Gergesites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and all of those people. They have to prove that they trust God every time they enter a city, every time they encounter a different set of people, every single day for years. They have to prove that they trust God by going in and fighting these people every time that God tells them to. Every day is going to be an act of faith in order for them to establish and maintain this new nation that God is giving to them every day. And so this is the perfect picture of faith and courage and the Christian life, right? We can't just say we believe. The Bible does say, if you believe, then you will be saved. But we have to prove that. We have to prove that we believe. We can't just say it. People that say they believe, but then refuse to prove it, they don't believe. They're too afraid or they have too much doubt. You cannot just say it. It's just like I was saying when my dad's asking me to jump and I'm saying, oh, I'm scared. And he's like, you're scared of what? You think I'm going to drop you? It's like, no, I don't think you're going to drop me. It's like, well, prove it. Jump. 
I'm like, no, no. And he's like, then you don't believe me. You think I might drop you or you would jump. And so, yes, believing is enough, but we have to actually believe we can't just say it. This is a belief that calls us to action. In the book of James, he tells us that even the demons believe and they tremble. They believe, but they don't submit to him. They don't fear him and obey. They fear him and resist him. And so that's not the same thing. If even the demons believe, we know that they're not saved. So believing isn't enough. We have to place our faith in him. He talks about this in 2.17 all the way to 20. And in 17, he says, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, it's dead. It's completely useless to say that we believe and then not act on our belief. There's no purpose in it. And then he says, some people say that they believe, but I can prove that I believe because you can see it in my works because I act on my belief. That's how you know I believe because I act on it. We have to act on our belief. We have to prove the things that we believe. This is how we prove that we truly believe what we say we do. We can't just say it, we have to prove it. Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of the things that aren't seen. The priests had no visible evidence of the thing that they were hoping for, right? Their act of faith brought about this evidence. That's how it worked. Their faith was the evidence. As soon as they placed their faith in God, God revealed the evidence that he could do what he said. But they had to take that first step. After they took the first step, God did the rest. And sometimes that's the way it is for us. God said, I just need you to take this very first step. Just say you believe and just step out in faith and then I will take care of the rest. We can't just stand on the banks and say, I'll cross whenever you part the sea. It doesn't work like that. Just like the Israelites never would have gotten to the promised land, we will not receive our heavenly promised land if we do not take that very first step of faith. Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we have to confess Jesus as our Lord, the one in charge of us, and as our Savior, the one that saved us from our sins because we do have sins that we need saving from. And when we place our faith in him, then he saves us. We have to take that very first step. Actually, we really don't, I guess, take the first step. That's the first step for us. Jesus did take the first step. Romans 5, 8, and 10 says that he showed, he proved his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. While we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And so actually Jesus did take the first step, but this is our first step. He's not going to do any more. He did the work to save us. And now we have to accept him as our Lord and Savior. When we take that first step, 
then he'll carry us. And then after that, after we believe who he says he is and that he did what he said he did, and we act on that belief by placing our faith in him, then that's really just the beginning of our journey. It's just the start of our Christian life. We have salvation, but now we have to exercise that faith every single day, just like the Israelites did. Every day we have to ask God, what do you want me to do today? And we need to follow him. Whatever it is that he says that we need to do, to step out in faith, trust him with our lives, and then we will receive that glorious promised land one day. Last verse that I'm going to read you is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. If he loved us enough to take that first step, to give his life for us, then we can give our lives to him. We can live our lives for him. The first step is to believe. The next step is to act on that belief by placing our faith in him and then continue to do that every single day until we take possession of the land that he's already promised to us. So hope that gives you a good understanding of belief and faith and trust in God and how we must have courage and continue to walk in his ways, continue to place our faith in him every single day. It's not just a one and done kind of thing. So next week, we're going to talk about the Passover and how they celebrate that right before they go into their first battle. So make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss that episode. Also, I'd love to know your thoughts. You can find my email address at livethroughjesus.com. Also, there's a blog post there that goes along with this lesson. So you can go to livethroughjesus.com, read that. And if you want the written lesson, go to Substack. The link will be in the description of this podcast for that. So thanks and have a good day. Thank you.